0: and welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live video series. And joining me today to share the stories behind the 10 books that influenced him the most on his life journey is Dr. Hank Wesselman. Now, I'm not going to read his full bio because it's far too long um, and rich. um, However, I'm going to give you a few basic facts and a few teasers because we're going to learn more about Dr. Wesselman as we move on through the show. So he is a scientist, anthropology and paleobiology, who's worked with various research expeditions since 1971 in the fossil beds of Eastern Africa's Great Rift Valley as a member of an international team seeking answers to the mystery of human origins. He spent several months in a safari camp in the Omo Valley of Southwest Ethiopia, 600 miles he says from the nearest cold beer or hot shower and he was with the superstars of the paleo community which included Don Johansson the discoverer of Lucy the 3.2 million year old human ancestor who represents a key turning point in our story of human evolution and it was there in those arid whispering lands as he describes them that his visions which resulted in his transformation into a wandering medicine man and a shamanist, practitioner, teacher and author of nine books occurred. His books include the very, very popular Spirit Walker tri- trilogy, one of my favorites, The Bowl of Light, Ancestral Wisdom from a Hawaiian shaman and Awakening to the Spirit World with Sandra Ingerman and The Reenchantment, which is his latest book a shamanic path to a life of wonder. So, Dr. Hank Wesselman, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, warm greetings from Hawaii Island. It's a rather overcast day here. It's about uh, eight o'clock in the morning and uh, sending you aloha.
0: <laughs> aloha. Aloha, now, to you. When I first interviewed you in 2012 about the bowl of light, you described yourself then as being in the 29th year of your apprenticeship, which I'm assuming you meant as a shaman. And now you're in your 37th year. Do you still regard yourself as an apprentice?
1: Well, you know, I've always had a little trouble with this word master. People call themselves master of this and master of that. You know, they'll take a weekend workshop and become a something master or a Reiki master. I actually believe that we're all students. We're all students. We're all here to acquire knowledge and refine our character. I think this is what the whole game is about. And as we travel across time, growing, increasing, and becoming more, our transcendent self, our higher self, our oversoul, or what the Hawaiians call aumakua, aspect of the self, grows increases and becomes more in response and so we're on a long walkabout across eternity nice to think of it that way you know what you you in hawaiian you say holo holo h-o-l-o h-o-l-o that's to go walkabout so today we're going holo holo with hank
0: (laughs) Yes, yes we are indeed okay so we always start off by asking two questions um the first one is What do books mean to you? Books!
1: I live in books. You know, I'm a scholar um, of the various roles that we, we experience life through Makua, Hale Makua the Kahuna, who's the um, Hawaiian elder in the book, The Bowl of Light. He said, you know, there are those of us who are servers, those of us who are artisans, artists those who are warriors, those who are scholars, those who are sages, those who are priests and priestesses, and finally those of us who are chiefs. And we're all going in that direction. We're all moving towards our queen or our king. And when the king or the queen sits in the chair of responsibility, their responsibility for everyone in their community, not just their cronies and family members and political allies. They're responsible for everybody's well-being. This is what it means to be a true chief. So the chief in the positive polarity is kind of like, there's the mastery, but it's not so much a master of things, although that comes with the territory, you know, it's the master of yourself. It's about finding your self-discipline and acting accordingly. The chief in the negative polarity is the tyrant. We've had a lot of that for the last four years over on this side of the pond. You know, it's coming to an end. Thank the Lord.
0: (laughs) Well, we had a lot of that in English history too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we have a crisis of leadership. And this is something that we as a species are going to have to deal with. In my opinion, Sandy, we're being given an invitation. And the invitation is to step up into the next stage, the next cycle of ages. Now, the last cycle of ages was 26,000 years long, according to Makua, the kahuna. That's what he called himself Makua so I'll just use Makua. Anyway he said you know the last cycle of ages was about separation and the new cycle of ages is about connection but we have to choose it. We have to choose to step up and if we don't choose it we'll step back into the last cycle which will create more separation. And response was, that will create war. So, you know, we have this choice in front of us right now. And those of us in the metaphysical community, uh, the modern mystical movement, um, the transformational community, I like that term a lot. You know, we have a big responsibility to help bring this new cycle of ages into being. And I think all of us are working for uh, a good result and we're all doing the work and it may take time. It may take generations of time, but you know, with this worldwide system of communication that we've got right now, I think it's possible that it could happen in a generation or two. You know, all the resistors, all the conservatives are going to have to modify their understanding of how reality is put together and how they are put together. And that's why Makua said that the first question we have to answer is, who are you? Because if you don't know who you are, you cannot experience authentic initiation. That's why I like these books that I, I, um, I listed for you. I was looking at Manley Hall's book this morning. And Manley Hall, have you read his stuff?
0: I haven't, but it's been on my radar recently uh, for, for a number of reasons.
1: It's really great. You know, this book, Self Unfoldment is a book that that Jill had on her bookshelf. And when I finally read it, um, I'll just give you how it begins. Existence is really a pattern flowing toward the real emotion in space a flowing of all life toward wisdom and truth. The metaphysical exercises worthy of the name are an unfolding of the self into the light of virtue, beauty, and wisdom. The goal is to develop a practical philosophy of life that will assist in the solution of one's personal problems Equip them for greater usefulness to oneself and to others. That's how that book begins. And man, it's just loaded. You know, I've got two yellow pads here of notes that I took out of that book. And so, you know, in, in listing those books, you know, they also contributed to the bowl of light. Um, I use the word ancestral wisdom from a Hawaiian shaman, although the Hawaiians don't use the word shaman. But I use the word shaman, I think, because Sounds True liked it for marketing practice, uh, marketing reasons. Uh, he was a kahuna. And a kahuna is a master, a master of canoe building or a master of geomancy, a master of wisdom, a master of spirits. There are different kinds of kahunas. And my relationship with Makua over the last eight years of his life affected me profoundly. And so during his lifetime, uh, I couldn't use his name if I was writing about him, and I wrote about him in the third book in my trilogy, Vision Seeker. I wrote about our first meeting, and then of course the Bowl of Light begins, and I'm using his name because he gave me permission to use his name. You know, most spiritual elders out here they don't like to be named. They don't like to be known. You know, they. They keep a very low profile. And the reason for this, I think, is humility. Mm. You know, in Makua's worldview, when we become spiritual warriors and he used the word warrior with deliberation because he was a warrior. That was his life role. And he was in five wars. The first was Beirut and the last was Vietnam. He was uh, kahuna on both sides of his family. And so in his last tour of duty in North Vietnam, he was shot up very badly through his legs and feet. And he became crippled, essentially. He was in the hospital for five years. He was a very big man. He was a head taller than me, probably outweighed me by a hundred pounds. And so, you know, he finally dropped the material military warrior role and became the spiritual warrior who he was supposed to become. That was his responsibility. That was his Kuliana. So he said the path of the spiritual warrior is a very narrow one. And I can talk about this with you because you're a spiritual warrior. Right
0: about that but um, I do want to talk more about Makua but I'd like to kind of work our way through your list a little bit first. We've okay. taken Manly Halls which comes much later in the list and I do want to hear more about him because I want to know why he keeps coming up in my you know, field lately um, so much. But let's start with the first book on your list which was The Way of Life According to Lao Tzu translated by Witte Binner in yeah, winner
1: winner. There are many translations of the Tao Te Ching. Uh, this one is my favorite. It's my favorite and it begins with uh, these wonderful sort of passages. Like the first passage is, existence is beyond the power of words to define. Terms may be used, but none of them are absolute. In the beginning of heaven and earth, there were no words. Words came out of the womb of matter and whether a man dispassionately sees to the core of life or passionately sees the surface, the core and the surface are essentially the same. Words making them seem different only express appearance. If name be needed, wonder names them both. From wonder to wonder, existence opens."
0: Mm. And I, in your write-up, you said, uh, how could this not be your favorite when the concluding lines of verse 99 are, and who will prefer the jingle of jade pendants once they have heard stone growing in a cliff? That's beautiful.
1: It's, uh, that. A geologist actually was the one who passed me this book in, back in the 70s. And that was before <clears throat> any of the mystical aspects of Hank Wesselman really had begun to express themselves, but that phrase really caught me. And so for about a year, I read all the different uh, versions of the Tao Te Ching that I could find, lots of translations, lots of interpretations. And the most recent one is that one, The Sages' Tao Te Ching, which is about elders. And, you know, I'm in my. 80th year now, believe it or not. Uh, I'll be 80 next August and the sages Tao Te Ching is really a beautiful beautiful thing. Here's the same first chapter growing older either reveals or hides the mystery of existence if you're becoming a sage you will grow in trust and contentment You will discover the light of life's deepest truths if you are merely growing older you will become trapped by fears and frustrations you will see only the darkness of infirmity and death the great task of the sage is learning how to see in the darkness and not be afraid
0: very wise very wise indeed yeah
1: that's pretty good stuff very good stuff you know, I just keep it next to the bed and I open it at random and, and um, you know, just read anything that comes up. Uh, the 39th about stone growing in a cliff, he's got a different ending. He says, don't believe the propaganda of gray, smiling gray-haired consumers continuing the insane attempt to spend their way to happiness. You have become a sage and you live at peace with all of nature, all the beauty of the world is yours.
0: Mm. Yeah, what I can understand why that appeals to you.
1: It does. It does. I think, you know, there is a tremendous amount of uh, resource out there in the literary world. You just have to know where to find it. And that's what you're doing. Yeah. You're providing us with a template for You know, metaphysics without the bullshit, if I could. I don't know if I can say that. Of
0: course you can. It's the name of the (laughs) book. Yes.
1: Yeah. You got to have a very well tuned bullshit antenna when you get into metaphysics because there's a tremendous amount of misinformation written by very well intentioned people. You know, endless angel books, for example. And these are people who really don't understand. Uh, what the angelic forces are, and who they are, and what they do, you know, and you get all this sort of myth, mythos knowing, um, rather than logos knowing, rather than direct experience. And so for me, you know, the shaman's path was a path of direct experience. You know, as we unfold spiritually, we go through four basic stages, in my opinion. The first stage is belief and we can have different kinds of belief systems. We can have magical belief systems. Like I believe that I can cure you through my intentionality or we have mythic belief systems where we delegate authority to some sort of angelic person or Jesus or God. We can have scientific belief systems. We can have rational belief systems and belief systems are good as far as they go and they can be very sustaining in the short term but not much changes in your life in the long term i mean you can believe in god or jesus for 20 years and your life can be in the dumper and you just don't get the fact that you're in the seat of initiation so when belief systems no longer compel us the second stage kicks in and the second stage is faith faith soldiers on when belief systems no no longer compel us but faith can take you in two different directions. In one direction it takes you down the hill, back into belief and that's what fundamentalism is and the whole born again movement, uh, the fundamentalists, uh, Islamics, the Christians, the Jews, you know this is a huge problem, fundamentalism. But when faith is doing its job it takes us in the other direction. It takes us up the hill, not down the hill. And at the top of the hill is the third stage of spiritual unfolding, which is direct experience. And when you've had direct experience of these transpersonal forces on their own home ground, and you've had that awesome jolt that comes with that, it changes you and it takes you immediately to the fourth and final stage which is personal transformation. That's why I think of us as the transformational community. That's what we're doing.
0: Yes.
1: And um, it's, it's really a kind of revolution when you think about it, um, but it's not a political revolution. It's a spiritual revolution about the unfolding of the soul. And it's about growth. And it's about becoming who and what we're really designed to become as we travel across time. So this is kind of where I've you know gotten into this stuff and you know I might add that most of my colleagues are very deeply concerned because you know to write a book like Spirit Walker would be considered career aside in the academic world. Yes. I mean, most academics would go to great lengths never, never to be associated with a book like Spirit Walker. Uh, But what can they do? The book is now in its 22nd printing, and it's published in 14 languages. So at some level, I've succeeded in what I tried to do. Whether it will work or not, that remains to be seen.
0: Oh, I think it does. I mean, you know, people like yourself, Bruce Lipton, um, you know, William Tiller, Um, there's so many wonderful people, scientists or who've had to deal with that kind of flack from their Mm -hmm. peers. But, you know, you talked about being a warrior. I mean, you're warriors for truth.
1: Yes. The warrior, the spiritual warrior. Makua said as spiritual warriors, there are three sacred directives. Sounds like a book title,
0: doesn't it? It does.
1: The Three Sacred Directives. Well, I've written about that in The Bowl of Light already. And what he said was, number one, you must love all that you see with humility. And when he told me that, I thought to myself, whoa, easy one first. Well, he's very clairvoyant and he picked this up immediately. He said, don't worry, I've worked on that one for seven years. Number two, we're to live all that we feel with reverence. And this reverence is about respect, an act of respect for everything and everyone we encounter in life. And this is a very interesting term because um, in talking with Makua, I remember one time we were in a, in a restaurant drinking margaritas and I was watching the way people were behaving. And they were all behaving badly, let's just put it that way. I said, well why do people behave like that? And he kind of looked at me and said, colonial mind. I said, colonial mind? He said, colonial mind and Western mind is the same. The foundation stone for colonial mind is dominion, domination. He said, the foundation stone for indigenous mind is quite different. The foundation stone for indigenous mind is respect. And I have to admit that in all my years in Africa, I was always treated with the utmost respect by the locals. You know, even the children, you know, this, this is something that I experienced directly myself. So we must live all that we feel with reverence. And that's very important. And finally, we must know all that we possess, and that includes what possesses us, with self-discipline. And this is where so many of the guru types stumble on the path. They lose their discipline and they behave in ways which are inappropriate. And we don't have to go into that because we know all about that already, you know. So these are the three uh, sacred directives. And I don't always succeed. I mean, sometimes I fail. You know, sometimes I fail. That's what it's like to be on the path. You know, we are to love, we are to live and we are to know, to gain knowledge through humility, reverence and discipline. It's rather simple, don't you think?
0: It is very simple. And I also think that it's You know, it's encouraging, too, because you said about failing. I mean, we are going to fail. We know we're going to fail. The fact that we know when we've failed, I find is really encouraging because it tells us, yes, you're on the path.
1: We got the lesson. We got the lesson. That means we learn the lesson. And once you've learned the lesson, there's no repeat. It's over. And then there are more lessons. You know, this is what McCoy used to emphasize. You know, we're here to learn lessons. We're here to drink from the four bowls. The four bowls. The first bowl is about the acceptance of the role that you're moving into. It's about your agreement to play the game. It's about Joseph Campbell's talking about the invitation, the call to adventure of the monomyth of the voyager across time so that's the first bowl the second bowl is the school of hard knocks that's the seat of initiation this is where we learn uh, from all the problems that we've created for ourselves through which we are to learn our lessons and Mako was fond of saying do you know what the meaning of the negative polarity is He said, first of all, that's where we learn our lessons. And secondly, the result from the school of hard knocks is that we learn how to lose gracefully. You'll notice we're having a little problem with that, with our current leadership, (laughs) right? That's as close to politics as we'll get learning how to lose gracefully. That's very important. Number three, that's where we're going to get smart. That's when we're going to achieve the goal of the quest, whatever the quest is for us. That's where we're going to achieve that knowledge and wisdom that we're here to achieve. And then the fourth bowl is about silence. Because the fourth bowl, you know, we don't want to just lay on everyone what we've learned and what we know, that will deprive those people of finding out for themselves what they who they are and what they're here to do. And when they find it out from themselves, they get the power that comes with that discovery. If you just tell them, oh, I can interpret that journey for you, I'm talking about a shamanic journey. Frogs mean, well, you know, that's all very nice, but You know, it would be much more interesting for a person to really think about this and contemplate it, sometimes for a long period of time. And then suddenly they get it. We've all had that experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the only experience worth having is our own. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, looking at your list of books and there are so many books here that I would describe as just you know, truth, wisdom, very simply stated, you know, you can't really argue with these, Mm -hmm. you know, universal truths. Um, And it's interesting because that this list resonates for me so much with who you are, who I've come to know you as from your books, you know, like, you know, your third book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, your fourth book is Essays in Zen Buddhist Ethics. You, Your fifth book, Cold Mountain, Poems of the Tang Dynasty Poet, Han Shan. I mean, you have all of your books, all of them, uh, classics.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I was a, a very poor student of Zen for about 15 years. I say I was a very poor student because I was busy. I didn't have time to go sit in the zendo in the meditation hall. You know, I had a family, I had children, I had a job. I usually had three or four jobs to make enough money to live. And so my practice of Zen involved, you know, chopping carrots and changing diapers and, you know, just sort of being there, you know, just being fully present in whatever I was doing. And so um, I eventually crossed trails with a Zen master who is the author of The Mind of Clover, which is a very good book. It's about the Eightfold Path in Buddhism, and it really lays it out. It really lays it out. This man, Robert Aitken Roshi, he's now passed. He was the Roshi of a a Sangha in Honolulu. Sangha is a community in Honolulu. And he came over to the Big Island uh, where I was living in 1987 and led a long retreat, which is called a Sashin. And it involved in a meditation center called Wood Valley. Uh, We would get up at four o'clock in the morning. Within 15 minutes, we were sitting and facing the wall. And we would face the wall all day with breaks every hour to do a kinhin, a walking meditation around the room. Then we would sit again. Then there would be little breaks or a little breakfast and there would be a lecture in the morning from the Zen master. And then we would just sit the whole day. Listen, this was really hard. All my stuff came up, you know, all my failings in life, all of my demons came to distract me. And I wrote about this in the book, uh, Spirit Walker, about what it was like to be in that and how one of my helping spirits, one of my power animals came to fetch me and how I just had to go out of body and go with him and then something extraordinary happened. But you know, when I talked to the Zen master about visions, because my vision started spontaneously. I wasn't uh, taking any hallucinogens. I wasn't smoking pot. I wasn't drinking. Uh, They came uh, because I think the guys upstairs decided it was time for me to wake up and do what I was really supposed to be doing. And I'm talking about this happened in my 40s. So it's half my life ago. And so, you know, as this unfolded, it changed me. It changed me. And I guess I moved towards that which I was actually supposed to become. You know when i was in my early 40s i was at the top of the ladder in my academic field i was working with the superstars of the paleoanthropological community people like the leakey family you know you guys know about them uh people like um don johansen the one who found lucy uh, people like tim white i've been working with tim white at the university of california berkeley um in ethiopia for, since the middle 90s. And we've uncovered an early kind of human which is so primitive, it's about four and a half million years old, uh, called Ardipithecus ramidus*. in science. This thing is literally half ape, half human. It could be the famous link between humans and apes that Charles Darwin predicted we would eventually find in Africa. I mean, this is big science, Mm. big science. This is like the Holy Grail of anthropology. So here I am at the top of the ladder. And then the guys upstairs, I think of them as the guys upstairs, sent in one of the big ones to see if I was ready. This is the first chapter of Spirit Walker where that towering dark figure, um, I encountered it in a visionary state, which happened on the heels of a joyous marital encounter I'm sort of looking around my poor wife used to wince every time I'd said that you know but the fact is that I discovered that Tantra is one of the classic gateways to transcend an experience this is why there is one vow that the universe will not accept the vow of celibacy I believe that very strongly We're here to enjoy ourselves. Mm. We're here to enjoy our bodies. You know, we're here to have a good time. I found a wonderful quote. Let me turn around for a second. I found a wonderful quote recently. You know, when students would ask Albert Einstein if he believed in God, he would look at them in his wise way. And of course, Einstein was an Asperger's, so he was socially rather undeveloped but he looked at them and said well the god i believe in is the god of spinoza so i found this great quote by baruch spinoza spinoza 1632 to 1677 he was a dutch philosopher and the title of the of this statement is this is god speaking get ready. What this is what God said to Spinoza. Stop praying. What I want you to do is to go out into the world and enjoy your life. I want you to sing, have fun, enjoy everything I've made for you. Stop going into those dark, cold temples that you built and say that they're my house. My house is in the mountains, the woods, the rivers, the lakes, the beaches. That's where I live. And there I express my love for you. The only thing that's sure is that you are here, that you are alive, and this world is filled with wonders.
0: Well, ain't that that's, the truth? <laughs> that's 400
1: years ago when that, that statement came out. It's a pretty good one, don't you think?
0: Yeah, the original conversations with God.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah well, those was, yeah. was interesting. Did you like them?
0: Um, to be honest, I've only ever dipped into it. It's never really grabbed me or attracted me enough to want to dive deeply and read all of it. There've been quite a few books like that that are considered classics in their own right, but I just follow my intuition and uh, I you know, I know what I like.
1: Well, you know, I have to agree. I felt the same way. Mm-hmm. I heard um, Neil Donald Walsh speak at a conference and I emerged from his talk with the understanding that he's a kind of megalomaniac. Now, maybe I shouldn't say things like this um, because, you know, he might pick up on it. But, you know, he never really manages to understand who this God he's speaking to actually is. And you would think that would be the first thing he would discover. You know, this God who speaks to us is our transcendent self. It's our God self in becoming. It's our higher self, our oversoul. You know, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson used the term oversoul to describe it. And I think in my book, um, The Reenchantment, I've got a reference to uh, Emerson's talk, which you can find on the internet. It's very concise mm-hmm. about who the oversoul actually is. And the fact is that what the mystics of the world reveal is that we are actually embodied souls and as Spinoza says, you know, we're here to enjoy ourselves. I asked Makua once about, you know, something and he he came up with this interesting question in response. He said, well, in the work you're doing as a anthropologist, how far back are you now in terms of time? And as you know, I told him, well, I'm right now, I'm working around four and a half million years ago, four and a half to six. And he looked at me and said, well, when you get back to 18 and a half million, that's where you'll find me. Now, this man was a mystic, but he didn't know anything about science. 18 and a half million years ago, um, this was a period of time called the Lower Miocene period. And the fauna was quite different from what it is today. The world was blanketed by tropical forests. And in those forests, there was an early form of ape called the dryopithecines. And these actually look more like monkeys uh, than apes, but they lacked tails. And you'll notice if we look around in restaurants and airports, nobody seems to be sporting a tail. That's because we're descended from that original ancestral stock at 18 and a half million years ago. Now, they weren't human then. They were still apes. Now, he didn't know any of this, but I did. So he said, 18 and a half million years ago, we were brought here as souls. We didn't come in spaceships or UFOs. We came here in canoes made of light. We were light beings. And we were brought here by guardians of very high degree. We were brought to this planet because there was a vehicle that was ready to receive us. These early apes. And so he said we embodied and we began to grow, increase and become more. And some of the guardians embodied as well so that they would be here when we were ready to receive the understanding and wisdom about who we really are and what we're here to do and then most of them left so i begin to think you know and he's watching me i begin to think and i'm going down the faunal list for the early miocene and i'm thinking guardians high guardians they would have embodied in a in a creature with a large brain and that did it the cetaceans the whales and the dolphins. Now, whales and dolphins go back to the Eocene, which is about 15 million years ago. But, you know, the first really modern whales and dolphins appear in the early Miocene about 18 million years ago. And Makua looked at me and said, you got it. No, I hadn't said a word. He was just listening in. So I had to explain to Jill, my wife, what what had gone through my mind. And then I looked at him and said, the guardians, they're the whales and the dolphins, aren't they? And he says, that's right. And I said, well, what is the knowledge that they gave us when we were ready to receive it? And he looked at me and he said, we're here for two reasons. This is the answer to the mystery of life, the answer to life. He said, first of all, We were brought here to enjoy ourselves in the beauty of this beautiful world. And then secondly, we're to remember who we are. And we can only experience that through love for one another. That's the whole answer to why we're here to enjoy ourselves and to love each other. And all the rest of it is just stuff. It's just the river of time. And it's easier to go with the flow, but some of us have to struggle upstream. You know, it's all about what we signed up for. And that is something that, you know, I like to explore. And a lot of the workshops I do, we have a very nice series going right now, by the way. I probably mentioned this to you. I'm doing a year long, weekly series of online workshops with Zoom. And we've got people from all over the place from the UK, from Europe, from Africa, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, uh, Mexico, North America. And I'm essentially doing uh, a workshop each week in which I'm drawing on all the, I guess you could say all the knowledge and understanding of things that I've gathered over the year. And we have about a half an hour of narrative and teaching, and then we do a journey with the drum to bring people into an expanded state of awareness. And then we do a recap and then we do about half an hour of Q&A. People love it. It's great. But I'm going to do another series next year, probably. I'd like to take people through the death experience. Because? That's the great mystery. Where do we go when we die? Well, you know, through my abilities, and my hel- the help from my helping spirits, I've learned a great deal about this, about where we go immediately after we drop the physical body, how long we stay there, who the guide is, who the guide really is. Most people don't use the word guide correctly. Um, you know, if you're talking about power animals, like the guy on the wall behind me, that's one of my paintings of one of my spirit helpers called The Leopard Man. Um, we're talking about helping spirits We're not talking about guides. And you'll hear mystics say, oh my guides this and my guides that. The guide is a very particular of a grace in our souls unfolding across time. The guide is a member of the higher organizing intelligences. And we're kind of like students. And the student is our higher self. That's the master teacher. The guide, and so the guide eventually stepped in and and gave me all sorts of tours of the upper world and the kinds of adventures we engage in between lives, which are really designed for the soul's education and elucidation. And um, I have a a long five-day workshop which I could divide into about fifteen or twenty weeks. About you know. <laughs> this particular aspect of the afterlife Mm. the afterlife is a fascinating thing and in our culture in western culture most people know very little about it
0: yeah i think there are too many books that purport to know what happens um and most of them are misleading
1: one of the best is um one by um dr newton it's called Journey mm. of Souls. Yes. yes. You've probably yes. read it. Yes. Yes. It's, it's a very, very good book, and I recommend mm. it highly. Maybe it should be on the list. Maybe it
0: should. You know, we need to return to the list. I mean, you're doing exactly what I hoped you would do tonight. Normally, I keep people very tightly to their lists, but I want you've got so much knowledge that I want our um, okay. viewers to, to share. But, um, we, you know, we have to be true to the spirit of it and just quickly go through your list and then we can come back to discussing things that aren't on your list. So just tell us, um, what was it about Cold Mountain uh, that you enjoyed so much? I mean, you've said that your copy is travel-worn and the poems are soul-warming. Give me give me a for instance.
1: Right. Cold Mountain. You know who this is, of course. Have you read any of uh, Cold Mountain poems? No, no. He's a Tang Dynasty poet named Han Shan. Han Shan means cold mountain. And he lived uh, in a cliff, in a cave in the cliff and associated himself with a local uh, Zen temple where he came and worked in the kitchen from time to time. And he was a crazy guy. He was like one of these Zen crazies. And all that really remains from him is about 300 poems that he wrote. And we don't know very much about him. Let me give you an example. This is one of my faves. He's talking about the ladies. A curtain of pearls hangs before the hall of jade, and within is a lovely lady. Fairer in form than the gods and immortals, Her face like a blossom of peach or plum. Spring mists will cover the Eastern Mansion. Autumn winds blow from the Western Lodge. And after 30 years have passed, she will look like a piece of pressed sugar cane. (laughs) That's Hanshan.
0: Okay. She's
1: terrific. There are a number of books of his poems. This is a very short one. Uh, Cold Mountain Poems. And, you know, it's the sort of thing where I read it on airplanes. My father and mother left me a good living. I need not envy the fields of other men. Clack, clack, my wife works at her loom. Jabber, jabber, goes my son at play. I clap hands, urging on the swirling petals. Chin in hand, I listen to the singing birds. Who comes to commend me on my way of life? Well, sometimes the woodcutter passes by
0: sense of humor
1: oh yeah they're really great they're yeah. really good
0: I should check that one out number six one robe one bowl oh then poetry of is it kind of Ryuken, Ryo-ken? Ryokan Ryokan Ken.
1: one Ryo-kan. robe one bowl yeah. is a wonderful compendium of Khan's poem Khan was a 19th century Zen master Uh, Japan of course, who lived most of his life as a recluse and he wrote wonderful poems about his about his life. I just pick one at random. Alone wandering through the mountains I come across an abandoned hermitage. The walls have crumbled and there's only a path for foxes and rabbits. The well next to an ancient bamboo grove is dry. Spiderwebs cover a forgotten book of poems that lies beneath a window. Dust is piled on the floor. The stairway is completely hidden by wild fall grasses. Crickets, disturbed by my unexpected visit, shriek. Looking up, I see the setting sun, unbearable loneliness. An e- another year lingers to an end. Heaven sends a bitter frost. Fallen leaves cover the mountains. There are no travelers to cast shadows on the path. Endless night, dried leaves burn slowly in the hearth. Occasionally the sound of freezing rain. Dizzy, I try to recall the past. Nothing there but dreams. I, I really like um, Chinese poetry. And I think that Ryo kan probably was kind of like a Dharma heir of Han Chan. They were both recluses who lived all of their life alone in nature. Um, a life of poverty, but the mystical life in which they were constantly aware of the foundation of the world, which is nature. The mm-hmm. same thing is true of the shaman's path. Nature is really the foundation because that's where the juice is. That's where the life force is. That's where the power to heal comes from. Mm-hmm. So this is also uh, a favorite and you know, it's not unusual for me to tuck it into my carry-on on airplanes and order um, half a bottle of wine on the plane and then sit and drink and, and read uh, Ryokan or Shan or, or Chuang Tzu or Lao Tzu. You know, these guys, they figured it out.
0: They figured it out. Yeah, someone else who figured it out was number seven. Um, And this is the man who you said that after actually hearing him speak at the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco in 1980, everything in your life shifted in response. And I'm talking about Joseph Campbell, of course, and the hero of a thousand faces.
1: Yeah, yeah, I heard him speak once. He spoke all day long at the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco. He never looked at his notes from nine to five with slides, and he kept the audience absolutely wrapped. And when I read Hero of a Thousand Faces, you know, it, it really revealed something very important to me that there is really only one story. And he called that story the monomyth, the one story. And the one story is the hero's journey. And each one of us is the hero in our own journey. And you know, to collapse it, you know, uh, somebody like you, somebody like me living our lives, you know, with jobs and, and salaries and taxes to pay and so forth and so on. Suddenly something will happen. For me, it happened in Africa as visions. Something will happen that changes the game. This is the invitation the call to adventure now society gives you every every reason not to go for it they don't want you to be a mystic they want you to pay your taxes vote in the elections you know have a white picket fence around your house have two cars in the driveway you know that's what society wants you to do but the mystic is the one the proto mystic is the one who looks at this invitation understands at some level what it is and decides to go for it. Now when the mystic decides to go for it, it puts you immediately in the seat of initiation. at the school of hard knocks. And in the seat of initiation, people's lives can unravel in truly spectacular ways, often in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's kind of like that poem by Frost about the two paths in the wood. And, you know, the one path is the straight and narrow and it's well trodden, and the other one it looks gnarly and pod, possibly dangerous going off into the darkness. And because Frost took the other path, it completely changed his life. Well, this made a great deal of sense to me because of what I experienced in Africa. And so when the mystic is in the seat of initiation, sooner or later, They discover that they have spirits, transpersonal powers, who will help them. And once you discover that you have these transpersonal friends, the whole game changes. And the hero achieves uh, the goal of the quest, whatever the quest is. And then, you know, the hero then, as an enlightened being, you know, where everything that really remains is love. Everything else is stripped away. See, that's Makua. Or are to love each other. You know, the hero has to go back to where he or she started. But they return as a world redeemer. And the problem, of course, for the returning hero is how to explain in terms of black and white things that the public at large can understand. It's, it's like Frodo in okay. the Lord of the Rings. That's the classic hero's journey. Frodo okay. is the hero, the ring bearer and Gandalf is his supernatural friend and he finally achieves the goal of the quest but when he goes back to the Shire at the end nobody has a clue as to what he has done or who he is and that's just the way things are. Yeah. So that's the way he sort of trans transforms and goes off on the Never ending journey to the, what was it, the lands of the dead or the lands of light, the never dying lands. Tremendous mm. story.
0: It is a tremendous story. And I would think it's, you know, what you've just said, not just about Lord of the Rings, but uh, the hero's journey is something that everybody watching, everybody joining us now knows full well. We can all track that, you know, when we accepted that invitation and we went out there and when we came back and nobody, you know, it's so interesting because, you know, I've recently come back to England after 20 years doing my journey in America and there are very few people, very few people that I can talk to Mm
1: -hmm.
0: about my journey because They just think I'm the same person who went, (laughs) you know, the same person they knew. Um, And I'm not. But, you know, you can't show them that because they're not ready to see it. Uh They have no frame of reference.
1: It's always a readiness issue. It's always, that's why the fourth ball is about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I expect quite a few comments from our audience about that one. Let's move on to, we've already discussed Manly Hall a little bit, you told us about it. Is there anything that you want to add there? Or should we move straight on to book number nine, which is Passport to the Cosmos, Human Transformation and Alien Encounters by John E. Mack.
1: That's a really good book. John Mack was a friend of mine. We used to cross trails at conferences and then he was killed, as you know, in an automobile accident in England uh, back in 2004, I believe. But when he wrote this book, Passports of the Cosmos, he was the one who wrote that first book on alien abduction. He was a professor at Harvard and when he wrote that book, he proclaimed that the alien abduction phenomenon is real. That it's real. And this put him at odds with his department. He was a psychoanalyst teaching in the medical school and they tried to get rid of him and it took him several (laughs) years and a great deal of money to preserve himself. And he was preserved, he told me, because he was such a great clinician. You know, they couldn't get rid of him. But The Passport to the Cosmos is about the alien abduction experience and how it interfaces with shamanism. And how the shaman is the one, you know, as you know, I may have said this already, the world is being divided into two halves, the world of things seen and the world of things hidden. The shaman is the one who learns how to expand their consciousness so that they can see into the world of things hidden. And so the equating of the alien abduction experience, these aliens may not be aliens at all. They may be transpersonal beings. They may be spirits. Passport to the cosmos. Human transformation and alien encounters. Here's I just opened it at random. Alien forms and the human psyche. Now this is written by somebody who's got impeccable credentials. Just impeccable. He's a scientist. And here It's possible that each of us contains potentially within our being virtually all possible levels of consciousness. From a visitation, may have something, the form of a visitation may have something to do with the direction of consciousness of the individual at a particular time in that person's life journey. aliens assume at first a form or forms that are familiar or comprehensible within the individual's own perceptual background and framework framework although strong propensities as a healer had drawn people into the nursing profession this person one of his uh, students always had a great interest in other cultures and studied anthropology and conscious in college and you know he really brings, uh, he talks about Credo Mutwa, for example, um, the Zulu shaman in South Africa. The only time he really felt fear, Krato said, was when a mob was preparing to burn him alive for pouring gasoline on him. I had that experience in Nigeria when I was there on the Peace Corps. Africans believe that if you're burned to death, your soul is destroyed as well as your body and that the soul will go into the darkness so that the person can never be reincarnated. Credo told Bradford Keeney, Bradford Keeney is another uh, writer about shamanism, that after being stoned by a mob in Soweto, he was pronounced clinically dead. He then saw the tunnel the great place of light that has become familiar in accounts of near death experiences. For Crato, this was the great spirit showing him its face. This is from a professor at Harvard. You know, this is an absolutely terrific read. And for those of your listeners who are interested in shamanism, this book really puts it together. Really puts together. My copy is just loaded with checks in the in the margins, you know, and so forth and so on. It's all based on uh, um, testimonials by people who are experiencers, and the interface between this abduction experience and the shaman's world is just too obvious to miss. As far as I know, I've never had any experience with with aliens, (laughs) the alien abduction experience. Although in my book, uh, Vision Seeker, there was a brain scientist who read Spirit Walker and wrote to me and sent me uh, a shaft of reprints. A lot of them were in French. And he said, I've just read your book Spirit Walker and I think I know what you're doing. Now in Spirit Walker I went to great lengths to describe exactly what I experience as well as I, how I experience these visionary states of consciousness. This got really good in Vision Seeker, the third book. Anyway, this man uh, said, I think I know what you're doing. Can you induce this state voluntarily? Well, after years of having these visionary experience, my subconscious, what the kohonas would call the body soul, learned how to do it. And I can do it any time, any place. This is part of what the discipline is, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I said, yes, I can. So he came to California. I was living in, in Sacramento at that time, and he set up a lab in his hotel room with an EEG machine. He'd been working in Brazil for eight years, and he'd been working with a woman named Gilda Moura, who's very well known in the parapsychology field. And they'd been gathering topographic brain maps of individuals in altered states of consciousness. Now, these included shamans, trance mediums. You know, virtually every family in Brazil has a trance medium in it. Um, Psychic healers, um, energy workers, they had a large sample. They had over 100 um, with an EE gene machine brain maps of people in altered states of consciousness. So he said, uh, I have found 10 people who claim that they can achieve these very high frequency brainwave states. And I'm wondering if you can achieve them. Well, to make a long story short, he hooked me up to this machine. It took me about an hour and a half to do it. I should have a photograph with all these electrodes coming out of my head, you know, with the skull cap and, you know, so he said he was sitting behind me on his laptop and he said, OK, let me see if there's any unusual brain activity, organic brain disease, temporal epilepsy. I was clear. He said, well, let's see how you do this. So I thought I'll give him a good one. So I don't know what I do, Sandy, I just do it. And I filled with these tremendous soaring feelings. I mean, it's the word ecstasy doesn't describe it. It's just incredible, this feeling. And so I think it involves chakras and energy and all sorts of things, but I don't really understand it. So I give him a really good one and I hold it for about 30, 40 seconds. And then I let close the door and I, I said did you get anything and he's watching his computer and he says you can really do this can't you and I thought to myself why would I tell him I could do it if I couldn't do it I was a little bit peeved and so he said well you'd be amazed at how many people believe that they can do this, this that and the other but when you really try to test them uh, it doesn't work out they can't he said can you do it again the That's a very male question. (laughs) Anyway, I gave him 12. I gave him a dozen. And in every uh, situation, my brain waves, my entire cerebral cortex lit up and my brain waves went out to 40, 50, 60 hertz. Now, hertz are cycles per second, as you know. And when we're asleep at night and we're dreaming, we're in one to three hertz. When we wake up in the morning we go into alpha waves and those are like seven, eight to oh, thirteen hertz. Beta waves, which are very high frequency, are between 13 and 20, 25. But these brain waves that go on to 40, 50, 60 hertz, nobody really knew what they were and so they were called the gamma rhythm. And the paper is published on on um, brainwave states, they all cited these papers that had been done with gurus who could achieve this in India, uh, Kundalini yoga people, for example. But you know what happened was that when this guy, whose name was Norman Don, I've lost contact with him, he was the director of the brain function lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. You know. He said when I was in Brazil I only found 10 other people who could do what you can do and they'd all had the alien abduction experience. So you can see why I read Mac's book.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You can see why I read Mac's book. So he came over to my house for lunch afterwards. He was going to a conference and he looked at my wife Jill and said you have a very unusual husband and you know Jill thinking tell me something I don't already know. And he says, no, I've only been able to find 10 other people who can do this. And I personally think that those who can achieve these high frequency brainwave states could be prototypes for a new species. Now that was really something to hear that because he essentially validated all of the experiences that I've recorded in the Spirit Borker trilogy. And this is, of course, what got me into the shaman's world of mystery and magic. So this was validation on the one hand and the other hand, you know, I immediately thought to myself, well, maybe we're all archetypes of a time when everybody could do this and we're in the process of losing it because we're not using it. Remember Jane Fonda, if you don't use it, you lose it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> except a lot of the new kids a lot of the autistic children can do this so you know and we've seen autism rise you know ridiculously over the last 20 years the incidence of autism and I know somebody who works very closely with these children mm-hmm. and the multi-dimensional <laughs> abilities that they have are quite phenomenal. So I do think that, you know, they are the templates of who we can become, who we have the possibility to become.
1: Yes, yes, indeed. Believe it or not, I have a 37-year-old daughter who lives with us, who's in Asperger's. She's a high-functioning autistic. And she's extraordinary. Yes. You know, she forgets nothing. For example, I was asking her about something in Lord of the Rings uh, not too long ago. She gave me this strange look and said, well, look in the second book. I think it's page 273, maybe halfway down the page. Now, The Lord of the Trilogy, she's got the whole thing in her mind. So I looked it up and by God, there it was, you know, but living with her is, is quite an adventure. She's quite different. Yes. and um she sees absolutely no reason to get involved in relationships asperger's is about socio uh, socialization yeah. people tend to be rather badly socialized like einstein like bob yeah. dylan yeah. that's yeah. why bob dylan wouldn't go to the nobel surprise yeah. uh, party yeah. you know he that would be just torture for an asperger's to go into that situation
0: yeah.
1: uh, thomas Jefferson, yeah. uh yeah. probably Beethoven, um, Bill Gates, yep. Yep. they're all high functioning autistics, probably uh, Steve Jobs.
0: And with um, I think statistics showing one in 50 children now, less than that, I mean we all know more than one, <laughs> you know, we've all got one in our lives. Um, if you're interested Uh, I'm sure you could have some wonderful conversations with my friend whose work over the last 20 years has been absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, But we have to move on because there's quite a few questions and quite a few uh, people are writing in the chat room. And I know there's, you know, some of them want to have their questions answered. And there's two more pieces that I want you to speak about. Book number 10 is your book, Spirit Walker messages from the future, and I would like you to tell us about one particular part of that book, because we can't discuss much more, um, where you actually had an unexpected connection with the descendant self 5,000 years after the collapse of Western civilization. What did you learn?
1: my goodness that's a long question
0: oh can you can you give us a a short answer
1: (laughs) well you know the spirit walker trilogy is about my connections with this man Mm -hmm. and it happened completely spontaneously after I'd had that initial initiatory experience while I was still living at Berkeley I moved out here to Hawaii uh, in 1985 with Jill and one child had been born by then And I began to have these extraordinarily detailed visionary dreams happen to me in the dream state in which I would have this classic out of the body experience. And I would find myself sort of traveling along this line of light in this vast lacy spiderweb like um, matrix. It's the matrix and I would black out and then I would come out And I was in somebody else's body I was looking out at a world I'd never seen before through the eyes of a man and I was merged with him in some way which is very difficult to describe it's easier to experience than it is to describe but in the beginning he was completely unaware of the fact that I was there in other words we have two souls in one body two awarenesses in one body I discovered very quickly that I could access his memories. So I began to learn a great deal about him and his community. This is a man of Hawaiian ancestry. That wasn't surprising to me because I was living in Hawaii. But he's not in Hawaii. He lives somewhere on the western coast of North America in uh, an environment which is more like that of Costa Rica or the Amazon. In other words, greenhouse warming's worst case scenario has created this massive biome shift in which everything moved north, including the uh, pine forests that are probably up somewhere. And when I connected with him the first time, he was in the process of leaving his community to engage in a quest of geographic investigation into the interior of the lost continent of America. Because when his ancestors arrive on the North American coast, there are no cities, there are no people, there are no freeways. Everything that we take for granted is gone. No Starbucks, no BMWs. And they set up camp and I'm, I feel, I think I understand that he is about a seventh, sixth or seventh generation descendant of this initial migration, which engaged over a hundred voyaging canoes that came from the home islands and traveled all the way to North America. And so he's a scholar like myself, and he's very curious about what happened to the Americans, what happened to the great Western civilization. And so part of his goal in this quest is to find out more information about us, and our time. Now, over a period of about 20 years, I had continual connections with this man that happened in sequence when he journeyed across the great forest and the lowlands and uh, passed across the Sierra Nevada mountains and discovered the remains of North America's once great civilization living in Western Nevada as hunter gatherers and they're sort of a combination of Inuit and French Canadian if I've got it right because their language I don't speak Inuit but their language has a lot of Inuit words in it and there are a lot of words which are French and because, because I'm a scholar you know 25 percent of the references my dissertation were French in French so I had to learn French. Um, this man lived with these people for over a year and through him as a kind of porthole i got a really good look at the future we're walking straight into if we continue to do business as usual that's what the spirit walker trilogy is about interestingly after the third book was published which was vision seeker the connection stopped and i couldn't open it up and then about eight years later, it kicked on again because he regards me as a source of information. He became aware of the fact that I was visiting within him and that he'd had the experience of cross a crossing with me here in my realm of time as well. So this is about time traveling. And this is about what time traveling really is, because it isn't the body that travels, it's the mind. It's the soul that travels and so this is a very unorthodox book, uh, Spirit Walker, and that's why it sort of indicated uh, on the one hand that it uh, created a kind of career aside for me and my scientific work, but it also uh, completely changed my life and that's really what drew me into the shaman's world. So my life, the second half of my life has been an extraordinarily enriched adventure. Because as I travel around, you know, doing workshops without COVID-19 sort of sitting on our our necks, um, I I meet the most interesting people. You know, I'll get a, a group of 30 or 40 people together in a room for five days and we'll do exercises encouraging them to develop this inner visionary, which I believe we have within us. And these are the most interesting people. They're much more interesting than the scientists, for example, who I've spent a great deal of my life with. You know, many of them live in a very small world. As they grow older and older as scientific researchers, they learn more and more about less and less until they know absolutely everything about almost nothing. And this is, you know, I did that. I can do that, but I don't do that anymore. But you know, working with people and developing this inner visionary within them, this is really interesting work. And I suppose in the last... See, Spirit Walk was published in 1995, 25 years ago. And I think in the time since that time, I've probably had 20,000 people pass through my life. About a thousand people a year.
0: I would say that this work that you're doing is more than just interesting. I, I think it's, it's, it's mandatory. It is, it's um, mandatory. I,
1: the, the Spirit Walker books, you know, it drew me into the realm of prophecy. Now I have no desire to be known as a prophet or to even get into that game. I just simply reported what I'd experienced without a great deal of interpretation. But the chapters in between the visions, you know, my life began to respond to what was happening to me. And so I kept track of it because I kept trying to figure out what this is really all about. And I think I was given this information for a reason. And my job was to get it out there. And I did that. And now those books have a life of their own. And you've done it.
0: You've done a wonderful oh. job of it, Hank.
1: Yeah, they'll either help to bring that new cycle of ages into being, or they won't, but I gave it my best shot.
0: Um, tell everybody about your book, The Reenchantment. This was the last interview you and I did about this book, which was about two or three months ago, A Shamanic Path to a Life of Wonder. It's, it's one of those books that had me sitting up, bed at three in the morning going oh my god oh my god oh my god um with some of the information that you shared if people haven't read it i highly recommend you do read it i mean i recommend all of hank's books that one was quite something for me um and i'm not going to say any more other than i'll be really interested if anyone reads it to hear whether they too had the same reaction that I did because you went out on a limb there and you shared information that not many people are brave enough to share. And I want to applaud you for that because- well,
1: thank I, you very much.
0: I thought it was a phenomenal book.
1: Well, thanks a lot. I'm glad you enjoyed it.
0: I did, I did. Okay, that is it. I mean, I've had so many messages of people saying how much they've enjoyed this conversation, how you know they could listen to you for hours um, maybe we'll have you do your 10 to 20 book just so that we can you know, get you back here and have another conversation. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, I'll hold you to that, Hank.
1: Okay. Well, thanks so much, Sandy, and thanks for all your Thank
0: support. You. Thank you. It's just been a, a delight to have this conversation tonight. So we're going to leave it there, everybody. You can find out more about Hank's work at his website, sharedwisdom.com all kinds of great information there and do check out his courses um yeah what can i say you you will grow mightily um from taking part in those hank wesselman thank you
1: thank you too and everybody
0: at home thank you for joining us we'll be back again next week with another no bs spiritual book club video um okay that's it thanks everybody bye-bye